as we continue our sermon series, we are heading towards the stretch. We're going to finish about half of Romans 8 and then Romans, uh, end of Romans 8 next Sunday. I've actually never preached on the latter half of Romans 8 in the 10 years. So if you're going to be here, it'll be new for you and it'll be new for me. Romans 8. Uh, but, but before we kind of jump into this, I, I wanted to open up with Paul to kind of give us context for where we've been and where we're going. Uh, this is from the message translation, and it's uh, Eugene Peters' translation of Galatians chapter 5. And I love his plain sort of, this is what it is, aspect of this. Look at what he says in Galatians 5. He says, you crazy Galatians. Did someone put a hex on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy happened for it's obvious that you no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. His sacrifice on the cross was certainly set before you clearly enough. So let me put this question to you. How did your new life begin? Was it by working your heads off to please God? Was it by trying harder? Was it by spiritual disciplines? Was it by pulling yourself up by the bootstraps? Or was it by responding to God's message to you? Are you going to continue this craziness for only crazy? Listen. For only crazy people would think they could complete by their own efforts what was begun by God. Am I talking to any crazy people this morning? <laughs> because if you weren't smart enough, strong enough, good enough, moral enough, yada yada, to begin it, how do you suppose you could perfect it? You didn't start this thing called the Christian life. What makes you think you could grow yourself? You didn't do anything to save yourself. What makes you think you could, hello, sanctify yourself? That's what he's saying. The obvious impossibility of carrying out such a moral program should make it plain that no one can sustain a relationship with God that way. Can all the crazy people in this room say amen? amen. See, here's, here's one of the most misunderstood part of the Christian life. If you're not a Christian here, thank God you're here because this is the essence of it. The most misunderstood part is almost like God goes, look, I did all the hard part, right? I died on the cross and I rose again, right? So here's the Bible. The least you can do is not live your life. And we kind of go, that's true. Okay. So I'm going to try, earn, work effort, and we even, yes, misappropriate the spiritual discipline saying, I can do this. And it doesn't take long, can we all be honest, before we go, I can't do this. You and I both know that. The essence of the Christian life was summed up by the Apostle Paul at the very end of Romans chapter 7 when he says what? Wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's Paul saying? He's saying, I'm helpless. I can't do this. Listen, that's not just at the beginning of the Christian life. That's every day after. Good Lord. <laughs> do you hear what I'm saying? 
I'm helpless. I am wretched. I can't do anything to save myself. I can't, therefore, every day after that, do anything to grow myself. I, in myself, in and of myself, do not have what it. So what does God do? I found, I wonder if it's true of anybody else, that God will bring us to that place where we will so despair of our inability to live the Christian life that we have no choice but then to go, I can't. At which point God goes, now you're ready. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? See, many of us are too young. Because <laughs> if, you if you live long enough, trust me, you will get to a place where you will be forced to say, oh, what a wretched man, woman that I am. I can't do this. I guarantee you, you will come to that place. And for those of us old enough, it doesn't just happen once, does it, Dan? It happens over and over. And why? Because we are hard-headed, stiff-necked, stubborn people. So I asked you last week, are you there yet? Are you at the point of despair over your inability? I know who I pastor. I know our church. I am pastoring, for the most part, fairly good, moral, very competent, well-educated. I can do life on my own congregation. Many of us give lift service to, I'm helpless. Oh, I'm helpless. But every day we walk around going, I'm good. I'm good. I sort of need God sometimes desperately, but I'm good. I don't do anything real bad. I'm fairly patient, fairly self-controlled. And ain't nobody going to convince me that I can't do anything. Do you know how many degrees I have? Do you know where I went to school? I know my church. Why do you think I preach the way I do? And then once in a while, I meet that man or woman who's, oh, wretched man I am. And I look at him and I go, boy, you're at the best place you could be. Because the spirit-filled life, the spirit-empowered life that God intended, you cannot experience it until you come to that place of, I am done. Are you there yet? Of course not. Why? You're well-educated, very competent, fairly moral people. I love this quote by Larry Crabb. He said, Brokenness is realizing he is all we have. Hope is realizing he is all we need. And joy is realizing he is all we want. And because God loves you, and he loves me, he will bring us to the place of, I know we Christians hate this word, brokenness. But if you're not broken, you will never experience hope. If you do not know the experience of hope, you may miss out on this life of joy that God intended. I don't know where I read this quote, but it just stuck to me. So if you, if you know where this quote, somebody said this. Will you tell me who, who said this? Uh, somebody said this. Change, or real change, doesn't happen until the pain gets greater than the payback. Does anybody know who said that? Because that's really brilliant. You will not be willing to change until the pain of the moment gets greater than pain. He's saying that every single one of us, good behavior, bad behavior, we do it because there's some sort of payback at the end of the day. Example, 
Even people who are doing totally destructive, destroying themselves and other people's lives, completely, you go, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Because whether they know it or not, there's some payback that comes at the end of it that says, I'm not ready. Real change will not happen until, so what does God do? (laughs) God will bring you to a place where the pain of what you're going through will be greater than the payback. Are you in emotional pain? Don't run. Stay there and probe it until you come to realize that only Jesus can fix it. Why are you good? You know why we're good? Nobody is good for goodness sake. You kidding me? We're all good for some payback. What's the payback for some of us? Very religious people. We go, well, I want my prayers answered. Well, I would like to be married. Well, I would like, some of us, we're good because we want God to leave us alone. (laughs) Truth? Why are we good? God, I'm good. Just leave me alone, okay? My nice, tidy life. Leave me alone. I'll be really good. Funny thing is, though, Christianity doesn't promise that, does it? Christianity doesn't promise that if you do everything right, the life will go well. I love the song that we sang, and I don't know, frankly, if half of us understand what we're saying. Blessed be your name, oh yeah, of the Lord. You know what that song is saying? That song of Job. Do you know what happened to Job? Do you remember what happened to Job? Let me give you another example. Remember John the Baptist? John the Baptist. He is in prison. Why is John the Baptist in prison? For telling the truth and for being obedient. He is in prison. He doesn't understand why. So he sends his followers to Jesus and says, are you the one? Are you the one? Because I want to know if you're the one. And Jesus says to John's followers, tell John this. Jesus actually quotes a passage from the book of Isaiah. The Messiah will come and he will open the blind, eyes of the blind. He will heal the sick. He will set the captives free. He quotes the pastor in Isaiah. Problem is, when Jesus quotes that, he doesn't quote the set the prisoners free part to John. So his disciples go back and say, this is what. So John is saying, they're going, I'm obedient. I followed you. And you're telling me this thing's not going to end well. The essence of Christianity is not if you love him and serve him, it will work for you. The essence of Christianity is if you serve him, whether he works for you or not, you will come to know that the essence of Christianity is not what God gives. It's that you get God himself. And to bring us to that place of desperation, to a point where the pain is greater than the payback, I believe You could disagree. When I look at Scripture, God brings all of us to that place of, I'm done. I'm done. Are you there yet? Am I there yet? Here are the three anchors to the Christian life that we talk a lot about in our church, okay? The three anchors. And just, this is review for a lot of you, But it's new for some of you. Here are the three anchors. One, the Christian life isn't just difficult. It's impossible. It's impossible. 
That's what Jesus meant in John 15, 5 when he said, I'm divine, you're the branches. If a man remains me, I and him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And that word nothing is the word udain in Greek. And you know what udain means in Greek? Nothing. <laughs> nothing. Secondly, second anchor, because the Christian life is impossible, we need a helper. That's literally all of John chapter 14 to 16. And the third truth that we wrap our minds and our brains around. Is the Christian life as God intended is only possible when the Holy Spirit who lives in us lives through us, this Christian life for us. And the journey to the Christian life begins not when you say that you believe this, but when you actually believe it. Are you there yet? No. I'm not either, so that's okay. We're, we're in it together. We're in it together. Romans 8.1. Let's jump in. Romans 8.1, here we go. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are trying really, really hard. There's no condemnation for those who are fully, fully committed. There's no condemnation for those who are got the math, got the spiritual disciplines. I'm being silly. But that's how we live. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? That's it? Yeah. You can't grow in the Christian life unless you realize Romans 7 and Romans 8. Romans 7, Jesus says, you're wicked. You're pretty bad. You're wretched. And right away in Romans 8, he says, but there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You know, Jesus alluded to this one time. I love this passage. Luke chapter 11, verse 11. Check this out. He's talking to his disciples. He goes, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Do you see what he says? He goes, you know, I love you unconditionally. I am for you. I am totally committed to you. But you're evil, you know. Have you heard that in your heart? Do you, does it blow anybody else away that God knows everything about us, past, present, and future? Everything. And he not only loves us, he actually likes us. Does it blow anybody else away? Oh, man. This is the only way. Aren't you tired of pretending to be somebody or not? I am. But if you don't understand this Romans 7, 8, you're going to pretend. Or you're going to be in denial. You will not be able to be rigorously honest. We talked about this last week. Looking at your wickedness, sinfulness, and the part of you that still needs to die. And have the courage and have the security to go, I'm not, I'm not flinching. I'm looking at my ugliness. I'm looking at the wretchedness. I'm looking at the remaining sin in my life. And by the grace of God, I'm going to address it. If you do not have that security, denial. Or you're going to pretend to be somebody you're not. I thought about what some of the signs are that we don't still get Romans 8 and 1. No condemnation. Here's some signs. Drivenness from need to prove ourselves. Why do you work so hard? Who tells you to? Why are you wearing yourself out? Could it be that for some of us, it's our way of working off our sense of guilt and unworthiness? If I just do enough, if I just do enough, maybe. That's me. It's me. Peter, why do you work so hard? Deep down inside, I don't believe 
Peter, in Christ, no condemnation. Second, (laughs) great sensitivity to criticism. Hello, spouses, spouses. Do you know why it hurts so bad when somebody criticizes something? If your entire identity is incredibly fragile because your entire identity is about what you do, your career, your job, how much money you make, how much you know, and somebody dares to point that out, your entire identity is going to be shattered. You're going to be like, whoa! Incredible sensitivity to criticism. Another sort of uh, cousins is uh, defensiveness. Defensiveness. Wives, can I ask you something? Anybody married to defensive husbands? My wife is the only one going like this. (laughs) Nobody else is raising their hands. Do you know where defensiveness comes from? Do you know how much freedom there is in knowing that you're not really all that you pretend to be? And when somebody calls you out, it's freeing to go, you're right. When somebody goes, Peter, and my wife says something to me, I'm not saying I do this all the time. I ought to look at my wife and go, you know, you're absolutely right. And thank God you don't know the other parts of me. (laughs) You're not that good. I know, I know. I'm a lot worse than you think. (laughs) Who do you think you are as a preacher? I know, but by the grace of God, where would I be? You stink. I know. My mom and wife have been telling me the whole time. It's freeing to be able to go, well, are you there yet? defensiveness. Why? Why? Your security, identity, it's so fragile. Seriously, call me out sometime because I'll be like, bingo, I'm a lot worse than you think. Thank God that's all you know about me, man, because if you knew the rest, I don't know if you come to our church. Oh, anyway, lack of joy, boredom, addictive behavior. You cannot grow and change unless you have a towering, infallible confidence that in Christ I am no longer uncondemnable. That means that I am accepted, approved, and secure both now and forever. Do you know this? You know what else? You won't have any motivation to live a holy life. You're going to lack resources for self-control. What do I mean? Let me ask you something. Which is the better motivation to live a holy life? Fear and duty or love and gratitude? Which works better to make you want to be a better person? Fear and duty. Yeah, that really works. Ask any of the Asians around you if that worked for them. Or any one of us that grew up in cultures that were very much conditional love. Do it, then I will love you. Which is a better motivation to want to be better? Fear and duty or love and gratitude? That's a no-brainer. That's a no-brainer. Love and gratitude, not even close. And the other thing is, real quick, it gives you sociological freedom. I constantly preach on this because I want our church to be the kind of church that doesn't divide the world into good people, bad people. Can we stop doing that? If you understand no condemnation in Christ, you're not going to go good people, bad people. You're not going to write people off. You're not going to say to other people, this judgmental, just, you're not going to. I was just thinking this week, why are we always hearing fat preachers yelling at gay guys, but rarely hear gay guys yelling at fat preachers? <laughs> what is up with that? 
I'm sorry if that was offensive to some people. Well, what is up with that? You know what I'm saying? None of us are in a position to stone throne, throw stones from our position of purity. None of us. It doesn't mean stand on your biblical convictions and what you believe is to be right. But you are not righteous, holy, and good because you are righteous, holy, and good. You are righteous, holy, and good because of Christ, goodness, righteousness, and holiness. So don't look at the world and go, God can't love them. Why? Because they're bad. What about you? sociological freedom. You know, I'm so passionate about this because I don't want anybody in our church walking in. And you know what? I'll be honest with you guys. There are days when I stand in the back, people walk into our church stinking of alcohol, reeking of alcohol. People walk into our church having not slept. How do I know? Because I saw you yesterday and you're wearing the same clothes. So you walk in. I don't want our church to be the kind of church. I don't care how much they reek. I don't care what. I don't care what they have done. I want this to be a place where anybody could walk in and not hear and see an angry God who says, "Clean yourself up first before I accept you." I want this to be the kind. I want this to be the kind of place where anybody, I'm serious, anybody could walk in because we have been so transformed by the gospel that we do not divide the world ever. 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 I was going to say, and if you are the kind of person that makes people like that feel uncomfortable, go to another. And then I realized Jesus loved them Pharisees too. So we need you Pharisees. We need us Pharisees to hear the gospel as well. Pharisee number one right here. Verse two, let's keep going. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature. That's the whole story of all of us. What we've been talking about. We know what we ought to do, but we just don't have the ability to do it. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be, suffer, uh, to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. God says perfection is required to you have, for you to have a relationship with me. God says perfection. I don't grade on a curve. Perfection. We go, can't do it. What do we do? God didn't go try harder. Strive a little more. Little. What did God do? 2 Corinthians 5. Oh, my goodness. God made him who had no, be- no sin to be sin for us. This is all review, by the way. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful man as an offering for payment for sin. And this is the amazing thing. God doesn't condemn you and me. God condemns who? Jesus. <laughs> I will spend the rest of my life trying to figure that one out but at this point i just want my response to be love so amazing so divine demands my soul my life my all because look at what christ did verse four in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us in you and me unbelievable jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law what was the requirements of the law perfection do you know what this is saying god says if you want a relationship with me perfection I don't grade on a curve. Perfection. We don't have a chance. God says, I know. So God didn't go, try harder, strive a little bit more, more self-effort. God goes, I sent my son who lived perfectly. And when you place your faith in me, 
the perfect life that Jesus lived, God says, I give to you. So that when I look at you, I look at you as perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, perfectly blameless. If that doesn't get you, want to go, hallelujah, amen. If that doesn't cause your heart to jump up and go, hallelujah, amen. You're just like me. And that's why we need the gospel. Not just at the start, but every day after. Verse 4. So, what's the uh, consequence of that? So that we do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Dan, as I was preparing this start, I was thinking, I've got Dan Rudakovich in my mind going, Pastor Peter, you preached all of spring and all of fall on what it meant to walk according to the flesh and walk according to the spirit. So don't review so I'm going to do a two-minute review. Is that okay? Is that okay with you? Because there are a lot of people here who weren't here for the Forgotten, uh, forgotten God Sermon series. Paul says the essence of the life, essence of the Christian life, is one question. Are you walking according to the Spirit? It's not how much you know, how many times have you read, how good are your spiritual disciplines. The essence of the Christian life, are you walking according to the Spirit? And here's the thing. If you are not walking according to the Spirit, there's only one other alternative. There's no other alternatives. You are walking according to the what? Flesh. We think walking according to the flesh, and we think some perverted sexual thing on the corners of society. That's not what Bible means. Walking according to the flesh. This is review. Definition. Is trusting in my strength and determination to bring about whatever changes I feel need to take place. You and I are walking according to the flesh if you think it's your responsibility to produce change. Can I say that again? You and I are walking according to the flesh. If you and I think it's up to me and my determination and my perseverance and my effort and my will to produce the changes that ought to take place in me. You are walking according to the flesh. Don't take my word for it. Jesus, John 15, 15, 5. Let's look at it again. You tell me what our responsibility is. Ready? I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do anything. Where do you on that verse see it is your job to produce fruit? Does anybody see up there going, it's my job to be more self-controlled? It's my, that's me producing fruit, by the way. That's my job. It's my job to be more patient. It's my job to be more peaceful. Even if it kills me, I'm going to be more. Where do you see that? Jesus says what? You're not a producer. You're a bearer. And you know what a bearer does? A bearer simply, check this out, abides. Does abiding look like a strenuous work? Abiding. What is abiding? It is resting, listen, in the finished work of Christ. And it is getting that truth deeper and deeper. Abiding in the love. Abiding in the work. Abiding in the finished work of Christ for me and my life. You and I can't produce self-control. We can't produce peace in the midst of un- just unbelievably hard circumstances. You can't produce joy. God says that's the result of someone who is resting, abiding 
in the finished work of Christ. Retaining control. Retaining control is another aspect of walking in the flesh. I say this to you guys all the time. If you're sitting there going, Lord, please don't ask me to. You're in control of your life. Lord, please don't ask me to. You're in control of your life. You're in control of your life. It's giving primary consideration to my needs, my desires, my appetites, and my fears when making decisions. Walking in the flesh is all about me, me, me. Self-absorption, self-will, self-determination, selfishness. How many of us, how many of us are walking in the flesh? For those of you that didn't raise your hands, can I ask you something? When you wake up in the morning, who or what do you think about first? When you pray, if you pray, what's on that list? For many of us, it looks something like, my, 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 my. It's Noah, two-year-old. My, my. What about yours, others, God's? No, no, no. It is self-absorption. It is self And by the way, we'll see what the result of this in marriages, relationships, and relationships with God later. And Paul says what? Instead of walking according to the sinful nature of flesh, he says walk according to the Spirit. And here's a definition. Again, this is all review. If you want to listen to the entire series, and I encourage you to, last spring and last fall, the Forgotten God Sermon Series. Walking according to the Spirit is living my life sensitive to and dependent upon the inner promptings and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in such a way that His influence and His leading dominate our entire being. You know what I love about the Christian life, Annette, when I was talking to her, her testimony, she, talk, she grew up Catholic most of her life, and she says about rules, 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 rules. The amazing thing for me is as she began to understand the gospel, she just kind of innately got it. Nobody just innately got that the essence of the Christian life is about a relationship. It is about a relationship. And you saw how many times she said relationship with God, relationship with God. I thought, there is this innate sense in us. And Paul Luther in Romans 7, he says, oh, what a wretched man. The answer, solution is not so. What can I do? Tell me what to do. The answer is who will rescue me? The answer is a person. It's a relationship, a vital intimate relationship with a person. Can I ask you something? How many of the things that you're trying to make a decision right now, the Bible doesn't clearly in black and white say do this or do that? All of us. I have conversations with artists, actors, business people in our church who come and go, Pastor Peter, I have a prayer request. What is it? And they'll go, I'm really trying to make a decision. And no matter how much I search in the Bible, the Bible doesn't say, yes, no, do this, do that, right? So you go, what do I do? And I always give this analogy. Soak yourself in God's word. But as you do, remember that the way that God leads us it's more like when you walk into a building that you don't know. Security guard. Hey, I'm trying to get to room 507. How do I get to it? And the security guard could go. Here's what you want to do. Go down about 50 yards. Take a left. There's five elevators. Take the fourth one. It's the one with the red light on it. Get into it. By the way, you're going to have to remember a code. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And once you remember the code, punch seven. Or five, five, I should say. Get to the fifth floor. When you walk out, come out. And instead of walking five steps, do ten steps the other way. Go. You sit there and go, whoa, 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 whoa. Can you just show me? And the security guard goes, yeah, I suppose. Follow. <laughs> it's a beautiful day today, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So what's, what, what, what are you up to? Oh, you know, I, just students and 
trying to decide what I want to do for my life. Oh, really? Oh, what, what is some? Well, hold on, hold on. Why, why? Oh, there's some construction going forward, and we have to wait a little bit. Okay? Nope, nope, we can go now. Okay. Oh, hold on, hold on. Because there's three people, they're messing around, and you don't want to be a part of that, okay? You don't want to be a part, but they're not, but no, you don't want to be a part of that. Well, let, let them do their thing. Okay. Ding. Which floor? Fifth floor. Fifth. Is that fourth? No, 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 not fourth. Fifth? Fifth? You know what? Let me press it for you, okay? Do you see the difference? Which would you rather do? What kind of a Christian life would you rather And you know the amazing thing is God intended your Christian life to be one of follow, I'll lead. Here's the problem. You will not follow Jesus if you do not trust him. of us that have a hard time following Jesus right now is because you will never follow someone you do not trust. Do you trust him? And can you be honest this morning to go, I don't trust you. We will follow a lie if we trust a person. Many people in our culture do. We will, follow, we will follow a lie over the cliff if we trust a person. If you're not a Christian, can I just say this real quick? It's not about is there absolute truth? Is there, is, is there such thing as truth, reality? It's part of that. But Jesus said truth is ultimately a person. It's not a set of theological assumptions. It's do you ultimately trust Jesus Dan, man, you're stressing me out, man. I got to move on, okay? Here we go, guys. Verse 5, verse 5. Those who live according to their sinful, I'm done with the review, have their mindset on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mindset on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Listen, pay attention, please listen. There's nothing in this verse that talks about the Christian life and becoming the new you, about behavior and actions. What Paul says over and over again is mind, mind, mind. Mind, mind. Six times in these two, three verses, Paul talks about mind. And he says that is the key to transformation. What does it mean to mind something? It's not just thinking about something. Minding something is. Just last week, I went downtown. When I go downtown, I like to observe. So I'm one of those people. When I'm at the L stop, I don't headphone. I don't do that. I just. But it's amazing because my mind when there's nothing to distract me, we'll kind of wander and drift towards something. Paul's saying, that's what you're ultimately minding. Minding is just thinking about something. Minding is obsessively thinking. It's inordinately thinking. It's, it's consciously being, compulsively thinking about something. And Paul's saying, what you mind is what you ultimately live for. Let me just say this. If you ultimately live for anything else outside of God, your entire life will always have a ground note of anxiety and worry. Do you know why? If you live for anything else besides God, it's a thing of this world. Political career, job, future, spouse, 
children, if you live for anything else besides God, it's a thing of this world. And if it's a thing of this world, it is subject to suffering. And when suffering comes in that area, it will wipe you out. Anything that is of this world is subject to suffering. And when suffering comes in that area, you won't know how to handle it. And Paul says, if you really want to change, it's not about, okay, give me the list, give me the... Paul says the ultimate way that transformation happens is if you change what you're minding. (laughs) You're sitting there going, I think I've heard this talk. Isn't it like, you're talking about idol. Yeah, that's your idol. Like spiritual master. Yeah, that's your spiritual master. You cannot change unless you change what you worship. And Paul says beautifully here, instead of minding the things of this world, he says, mind the things of the spirit. I love that. I love that. What is he saying? He's saying be preoccupied by the things to which the spirit is preoccupied with. And do you want to know what the Holy Spirit right now is totally into? Do you want to know what the Holy Spirit is consumed with? Do you know what the Holy Spirit is thinking about? Do you know what the Holy Spirit, if he's by the L, just kind of chilling out, what he's ultimately going to? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. He said so in John 15. Oh, John, yep, John 16. He that is the Holy Spirit, will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you when the Holy Spirit is preoccupied with what the Holy Spirit is into, what the Holy Spirit is naturally minding is what Christ has done and who he is. Isn't that beautiful? Do you know why this is so important? You will never overcome temptation and sin by repressing desire. I said this last week. You will have to find a greater desire. You will never be able to overcome your sexual temptations by saying, no, no. You and I know this. Come on. Well, we're not going to do it today. But, you know, we call hands. All right, we'll hold hands. Well, we're holding hands might as well hug, right? A hug. And inside you're going, I promise I won't do this. I said I was going to do this. And you're going, just say no, just say no. Church, does that work? It never works. Why? You cannot overcome temptation and sin by repressing desire. You have to find an all-surpassing, infinitely greater desire that will say, why would I want that when I've got this? You know, one of the best examples of this I see in the Old Testament that I love is Jacob and Rachel. Do you remember this story? Real quick, Jacob. Before we go to that, Jacob. Remember Jacob, Isaac's son? So Isaac says, Jacob, go find yourself a wife. So Jacob goes with this servant. He's looking for a wife. He kind of meets a guy named Laban, a scoundrel, a scoundrel of scoundrels, right, who has daughters, beautiful daughters, right? And Jacob says, I don't want the older one. I want the younger one. Her name is Rachel. I don't want the older one, Leah. So Laban says, okay, here's what, I, here's what I want you to do. I want you to work seven years for me, seven years of hard manual labor, and I'll give you my daughter. So Jacob does. And the night of the wedding, Jacob gets a little, you know, plastered. And Laban, what? Slips, not Rachel, but what? The older one, Leah. Jacob wakes in the morning and goes, what is this? <laughs> he didn't say that. He just said, you're not Rachel. <laughs> so he goes, to the, he goes to the father and goes, what's up with that? And the father goes, work seven more years. That, my friends, is love. 
Can I get an amen? That's love. And what does Jacob do? He doesn't go, oh, no. He goes, seven more years, seven more years for my Rachel. Fine. And we find this verse. The Bible says that Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Oh. <laughs> it's beautiful. Do you know why? Because imagine, he's freaking concrete, he's digging, right? It's year like four, year five. He hasn't had a vacation. He hasn't done anything. Do you think it took self-control to continue to work? Answer, yes. He wanted a break just like anybody else. He's working. Where does the self-control come from? Going, I He's able to do the work. Why? Does he want to take a break? Yeah. But you know what he wanted even more? Rachel. Self-control is not suppressing my will. Self-control is reprioritizing the loves in our lives in such a way that Jesus Christ becomes the supreme, ultimate priority and love let me ask you something you being a christian is it manual labor oh, self-control or is it one of this is a breeze why i love him this is so foreign for some of us <laughs> i describe the christian life this way you're like Peter, you don't understand. Look, I'm not minimizing the fact that self-control, it takes a lot of discipline, accountability, massive accountability. But there's a difference between I'm going to do this because I should, walking in the flesh, or I'm going to do this. Why? Because I want to do what I should do. Are you there yet? I'm telling you right now, those of you that are struggling with addictions, those sins in your life, besetting sins, you're going, not again, not again. Only way to overcome them is not continuing to say no. You have to find something greater to say yes to. You have him. His name is Jesus. Go to him. Verse 7. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Verse 9. You, however, are controlled not by sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, listen to this, your body is dead because of sin. Yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. You know what Paul is saying here? This is what I love. He's saying... The most obvious effect, influence of what sin has done to you is look at yourself in the mirror. He's saying your body is decaying. Oh, yeah. Your body's dying. Physical body, effect of sin. I know some of us try to cover it up with makeup, cosmetics. Some of us, guys, work out. By the way, I just, I just thought, as we get older, guys, why do we continue to, like, pull up our pants higher and higher? What's that all about? Does anybody know? Is it more comfortable? This way? Oh, yeah, no. Every single one of us. Paul says, Paul says, look at yourself in the mirror. I said that because my wife was like, why are you hiking up your pants so high? So anyway, just thinking. Paul says, if you want to see why you're sitting, look in the mirror. You see the effects of sin. Now, Paul is asking rhetorically. Look what he says. This is powerful. Verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who lives in you. He's saying this. As you look at yourself in the mirror, he's saying physically, your body is decaying. Paul says, do you and I have the power to overcome the physical decay in our lives? Answer? 
Answer. Of course we don't. And Paul is rhetorically saying, if you don't have the power to overcome the physical decay in your life, what makes you think you have the power to overcome your battle with sin and temptation and win? Did you ever think of it? If you and I cannot, no matter how hard we try, overcome physical decay, it's inevitable, it's happening. Paul says, what makes you think that you can overcome then your battle with sin internally? Aha, and then he says this, I love it, but he goes, my Holy Spirit entered into not just dying, but a dead, lifeless, wrapped in 100 pounds of ointment, uh, Hundred pounds of ointment and cloth in the grave, three days beginning to rot. My my spirit entered into that physical body of Jesus and brought that physical body that you could you can to life. And he says, That same spirit now lives inside of you. And he's going, Why in the world would you want to try and fight sin and temptation when you know you can't even overcome when you have the Spirit of God, who entered and breathed life into a dead, lifeless, decaying body of Jesus. That same spirit lives inside of you to help you overcome sin and temptation. And he's saying this, listen, those of you in our church right now who think that sin and temptation has a death grip on you, it has a death grip on you, you're going, I can never, ever overcome this. Jesus Christ says, you have no idea of the power that lies in you. Oh, that's the thing I love about our church. When this resonates with you, and like six of us, it resonates, you realize when you go home today, you look at yourself in the mirror and go, I can't overcome sin and temptation. What? But I have him living inside. Listen, if to the Holy Spirit, a dead, dying, decaying, 100-pound bio, if that was nothing for Jesus... You think your sin and temptation and besetting sin is anything for the Spirit of God? Answer, no freaking way. Sorry about that. I just wanted to stress. Verse 12, we're going to end. We're going to end. Verse 12, therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to that the mystery of the body, you will live. Listen very carefully, especially if you're married or you're in relationships. Paul says the result of walking according to the flesh is that it comes, anything you touch will die. And in Hebrew and Greek literature, death doesn't mean going out of existence. It doesn't mean that. Death in all Hebrew and Greek literature means end of a relationship. And what Paul is saying this, anybody who approaches life from the perspective of walk according to the flesh, anything that that person touched, that relationship will die. Husbands, I'm preaching to myself. If you're walking according to the flesh and self-absorbed, you are hurting your wife. Can I ask you something? When's the last time you looked at your wife? And I'm preaching to myself this morning. When's the last time you looked at your wife and said, Honey, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? What is on your concern list? When's the last time we did that? When's the last time you took your eyes? The reason why every relationship dies is because if you enter a relationship and all about me, 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 me. That relationship will die. 
And Paul's the same thing with God. If you enter into a relationship and it's all about me, 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 and the essence of Christianity is lordship, which means you, 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 you. You're always going to feel like, even if you're a churchy person, religious person, doing all the right things, you're hitting a ceiling with God because at the end of the day, walking according to the flesh is me, my needs, myself, and that leads death of a relationship. By the way, when you have two people walking according to the flesh, that's called World War III. Me, 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 me. Oh, no. Me, 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 me. I think this is from God, so I'm just going to say it. On this Father's Day, some of us men need to go home today. And we need to repent and confess our sin of walking according to the flesh to our spouses. And ask them for forgiveness for being such a self-centered, self-absorbed jerk. Because on this Father's Day, what if we took our eyes off of ourselves and said, I would not be where I am today if not for my wife and my children. See, no clap for that one. I know. I'm going to clap for myself. Okay. Anybody have a hard time hearing God? Do you know why we have a hard time hearing God? Why would God speak to you if you have all the answers already? Why in the world would a creator God speak to you if you go, I don't really want to know because I have my life planned out. God, what do you want me to do? God's going, you already know what you want to do. <laughs> you told me. To. If you want to hear from God, pray the angel's prayer. Go to God and say, God, the answer is yes no matter what. Whoa, where did I come from? God will speak to a child who says the answer is yes, no matter what. Let's finish. Verse 14. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Dada, Abba, Daddy, Papa, Father. It's the most intimate term. Last night, <laughs> Noah started crying. It was like 1130 at night. And if you're a parent, there are all kinds of cries, yes? There's a I'm hungry cry. There's a I'm really mad cry. And then there's the I'm hurt cry. And as a parent, when you hear your child crying, it's not that you love the child more. It's that your love is intensified and stirred. So I went into Mo's room, picked him up, put him right here. His favorite song right now is Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. How I wonder what you are up above the... And you know the whole time I'm singing, if you're a parent, you know this. When our child is suffering and hurting, there's a part in our parent that says, I will do anything if I could take that away even if I have to suffer myself. He heard the cries of his children. And here's the amazing thing. He actually did take on our suffering and our pain. 
And if you are someone who's crying out, Father, where are you? You may not know the answer to why you're suffering and what you're going through. But you know what the answer isn't. And the answer is not that he doesn't love you. The answer is not that he doesn't care for you. He loved you and he cared for you so much. That he literally took on our suffering upon himself. So that he could end our suffering someday, once and for all. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, Lord, that we may share in his glory. Anthony, you can come on up. On this day, I'm going to call two very important people. One is Jenny's dad, and one is my dad in Korea. I'm one of those people that was blessed beyond measure to grow up, and it was an imperfect home. By no means was it perfect, but I grew up with a father who loved me and cared about me, who did his best to support me. And I'm sitting here this morning, and I'm well aware that every single one of us, I don't know your story, but every single one of us, who we are today has been very much shaped by our family, by our environment, by relationships. And some of us sit here today, and today is a very painful day because today is a reminder not of joyful, happy moments, but today is a reminder that because of a result of these relationships... And because of these factors, we struggle with the anger that we do. We struggle with promiscuity the way we do. We struggle with bitterness the way we do. We struggle with these issues. And every single one of us this morning is intimately aware, attuned to the power of relationships. And do you know what I just read in the end of Romans 8 when we look at this passage? Do you know what this is saying? God is going to look at you and he's looking at me and he's saying, you already know the power of relationships. You already know how the now problems that you have have a direct correlation to your past relationships. And all God is saying in his word is that just as you are powerfully, intimately aware of the power of relationships to shape you and form you negatively, God says, watch what I can do and what I will do when by the power of the Holy Spirit I enter into your life, not to give you a list of rules, but I enter into your life for a relationship. And just as this relationship has hurt you and has harmed you and has formed you negatively, God says, watch what I can do when I enter into your life in the power of my spirit and begin to shape, mold, set you free, heal. Community is what has hurt you. Community is what will heal you. And on this Father's Day, 
our Heavenly Father invites us, you and me, into this spirit-filled, spirit-empowered relationship of intimacy. And he says, watch what I can do. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And I just pray right now. Especially for those of us here who have painful memories of our earthly fathers. And we have spent most of our life battling, struggling, fighting, overcoming the effects of that relationship. And God, to my precious brothers and sisters, more than anything else, I pray this morning by the power of your spirit, you would remind them that you have called them into a relationship with the Heavenly Father who says, watch what I will do in your life in the context of this relationship. And to those who struggle to know that, realize that, that you, God, by the power of your spirit, right now, even as I pray, begin to minister. By the power of your spirit, begin to call. By the power of your spirit, begin to heal. Yes, Lord, heal and restore and renew.